Hey Harvest, Cheryl and I are grateful for some extended time off to rest and recharge. I know during these weeks, you're gonna be very well fed with this greatest hit series. Each preacher who's coming is gonna bring a favorite verse or passage and preach from his heart. As for this weekend, as we get started, it's a privilege to introduce to you Julian Freeman. He's the founding and lead pastor at Grace Fellowship Don Mills in the big city of Toronto. Julian was one of the founding members of Grace Fellowship Rexdale before leaving the plant in Don Mills. Now, Julian's married to Stacy. They have four daughters, so I bet their home is lots of fun. Julian has a degree from Heritage Baptist College. He's currently working on his Master of Divinity at Toronto Baptist Seminary. He loves God's Word. He's passionate about the church and about the mission that Jesus has given to us as believers. I mean, you don't plant a church unless you're really about these things. So I know he's going to bring a strong word, so get your Bibles open and welcome Julian to Harvest. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I was curious to hear what Todd would say in that video. I, I've been wondering uh, why he would ask me. Um, and then I realized it's probably because I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan. And I, I <laughs> noticed he didn't include that. And I've been puzzling about that since last night. And then I realized it's probably because he wants you to trust me that he didn't include that. <laughs> and then I just ruined that. So um, I apologize. But anyway, no, it is, it is uh, good to be with you. Uh, we love what God is doing among you. I love following Todd, kind of like a creepy stalker online, uh, seeing, seeing what he's doing among you here, getting updates from Todd whenever I can. He loves you, um, and he boasts on you guys all the time. So it's, it's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Um, one thing I, I just want you to be aware of before we dive into the text, I'm going to be reading in just a minute from Genesis 12. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis 12. But one thing I wanted to encourage you with before we dive into the text together is this. Uh, your pastor is a man who reflects the heart of Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There's a passage to me that has often been puzzling in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus is um, ministering to the crowds. There's great crowds coming, and they are hungry. And the text says in Mark 6 that Jesus had compassion on them. And the way I work, because I'm often ruled by my stomach, I want to eat more, is I think, well, if they're hungry, compassion means you feed them. And Jesus thinks that too, but in a different way. It says because he had compassion on them, he taught them. The compassion of a shepherd for the sheep is to open up God's word and to feed them from the green pastures of God's word. And that's the heart that God has given Todd for you. And what I want you to see in that is not so much just here's why you should listen to Todd, although that's true as well. What I want you to see through that is behind that, there is God who is the giver of every good gift. Jesus, the chief shepherd, has given you an under shepherd after his own heart who in compassion and boldness and conviction and love wants to open up this word week after week to you and feed you from God's green pastures. So I want you, when Todd returns and he gets back in here and starts opening up the word again, to remember as he starts preaching that that's not just Todd talking to you, that's a gift that you've received from King Jesus who loves you and wants you fed and healthy and strong for all that lies ahead. So we thank God for... Todd, I thank God for the example he's been to me, for the faithfulness God's given him, and for the gift that that is to you guys. But now I want to do what I know Todd would want me to do, which is get into the Word together. So Genesis 12, I'm going to read the first nine verses, and then we'll pray and 
dive into the text together. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they, had, that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Let's pray. Father God, we look to you who spoke these words thousands of years ago, promises to Abram of a blessing that you would give through him that would reach to the nations. Father, we come as one of those nations, people gathered from the corners of the earth to receive your promises, to receive your blessings. Our great desire this morning is that we would see through these promises to the giver of every good gift, that we would behold you, that we would see your grace, your mercy, your power, your love, that we would be filled with faith to respond and that we would be transformed through the study of your word. So give us grace to do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to be a hose. It's not the greatest start to a sales pitch, is it? Uh, I want you to be a hose, not a cup. I want you to be a fountain, not a cistern. I want you to be a river and not a pond. And I want, hopefully, for by the time we're done, for you to understand what it is that I mean when I say those things. Todd's given us this series here, Greatest Hits, and we're supposed to go back and find stories that resonate with our lives, favorite verses, favorite passages, and this passage is one that for me over the years has resonated in a number of ways. I think you'll see for yourself, um, I hope, much like me, you see yourself on this page of Scripture, not, not because I'm great, not because you're great like Abram, not because we're significant in redemptive history, but just because this passage becomes for the rest of the Bible and into our day, paradigmatic. It becomes a paradigm 
for how God saves, how God reaches into the lives of his people, how he works in the lives of his people and what he calls his people to. And so what I want to do in this passage, which is in many ways a beginning, is I want to dive in with you this morning and see from this passage through Abram, see how God saves, who God saves. And then by the time we're done, I want to get to this question. Why? Why has God saved me? Why has God saved you? Why has God built this church? What does he have in store for you? What are his plans for you? So that's where we want to get, first of all, Though we want to start with the how. Through Abram, we see how God saves. And there's a real simple answer to that from this passage that I can give to you so that if you're real tired, I know it's the early service. If you want to doze off for the next 10 minutes, you'll already know the answer to the question. How does God save? He saves sovereignly by his own initiative. He saves by his sovereign will. What do I mean by that? I mean that in any relationship, someone needs to take the first step. Someone needs to make the first move. Now think about your relationship with your spouse if you're married or if you're engaged, your wedding day's coming up, you can reflect, oh yeah, I remember when we first got together. You remember how that happened? People like to have a great, like, you know, first meeting story. For me, when I met my wife, it was love at first sight. For her, it was first sight. You know, so, so it's like, it's, it's great because I, I'm like, if, if you know me, uh, I'm not a guy who's typically short for words. I saw her and I couldn't speak. Um, I, I, I just, I, I froze. I could talk to her mom. <laughs> I, I could talk to other people that were around her. I couldn't say anything to her. It took two weeks. A second time she had to come back to church another week. And even then I froze. So it wasn't until she finally came up to me. So I like to kind of bug her now. Uh, you made the first move with me. But it's really because she was just unimpressed with me, so she could talk to me, see? So it's kind of complicated with us, I like to think, anyway. We're, you know, but it worked. But with God, it's much more clear. Who makes the first move? Who takes the first step? It's God who takes the first step in Abram's life. How do we see that? We see that in all kinds of ways. Here in this text, I mean, really, if you read back before Genesis 12, before this story that we're jumping into this morning, you can already see God at work making the first move, as it were, even in the genealogy that you read in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, there's this story that's being told of how God has worked from one generation to the next to prepare the way for what he's going to do in Abram's life. Maybe some of you are like me, you like to do the read through the Bible plan. So in the new year, you start a new plan and you're all excited to do it. And you start reading through the Bible and you're in the Old Testament and it's like, oh, there's a genealogy. Oh, there's another genealogy. And by the time, why are these things here? Do I re- is it really important? What's the purpose? Well, one of the things genealogies do is, is they're basically like a God at work story that just spans generations. It's bigger than one person's life from one generation to the next. Like Jordan was reminding us this morning, God has been at work. And this is so important. It's so important at this point of the narrative. Because what you begin to see here in this narrative is that from the line of Shem, which remember was the descendant of Noah, Noah had inherited the promises that had been given to Adam and Eve of a seed who's going to come and bring deliverance. And that comes down through Noah and then through Shem. Shem is the promised line. And then from Shem, you read down, as you read through the genealogy, you pick up on this fact. Abram is the 10th generation from Shem. 10th generation. Abram's father, Terah, is 70 years old. 
So when you're reading through a genealogy and you come across numbers like 70 and 10, what that's supposed to indicate to you is something of the fullness of time, the perfection of God's plan. In other words, if you're reading through this with an awareness of the numbers, you're having your hope built up. What is God about to do? It's 10 generations. The time is now 70 years the father's born. God must, or the son is born. It must be that God is at work. And that's so important because so far the story is dark. There's been a promise given to the line of Adam and Eve, to the seed of the woman, and there's this promised line that's been traced. But if you're reading through Genesis, by the time you get to Genesis 11, you get to this man named Terah. Terah is living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He is a moon god worshiper. He is a pagan. He has three sons, three hopes for the world. One dies, one never comes to the promised land, and the other one, Abram, is 75 and married to a woman who's barren. It's the hope of the world. This line, this is dark, but God is at work. Even before Abram is born, not just, not just in the genealogy, but in the call of Abram in his life as well. In our passage in Genesis 12, when God calls Abram and says, come, come into the land that I will show you. And I want to I show you that it's God here who's making the first move in Abram's life. And this isn't just me reading into the text. This is how the New Testament authors saw this as well. So in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is on trial before the Jewish leaders, he says this as he recounts the history of God's people. Stephen said to the Jewish leaders, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, before this passage that we're reading about here, when he was living in a foreign land, God made the first move. God said to him, go out from your land, from your kindred, and go to the house that I, or go to, into the land that I will show you then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So this, the move kind of happens in two stages. His father, Terah, also leaves the land in which he was living. And we're not too sure why. The promise was given to Abraham. Terah goes as well, at least initially. But it might have been just because mm, prudential reasons. He might have been reading the newspaper and putting two and two together. Because Ur was like destroyed pretty shortly after they moved out. So he might have just been looking at the political scene and thinking, we've got to get out of here. And he did. He got out of there. But he only made it halfway. So Abram goes with his father. And with his family to Haran. And they settle there for a time. Abram fulfills his familial obligations until his father dies. And then he acts on God's promise to move into the promised land. So it's God making the first step. But God here is interested in more than just life relocation. What God's in the business of is heart renovation. And that's what we see going on here with Abram too. Again, this is another, another passage in scripture where a leader of God's people is describing to God's people how God was at work in Abram's life. Look at Joshua 24. Joshua said to all the people, he recounts these words, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And what? They served other gods. Catch that? Abraham, 
father of the faith. What was he doing when God called him? He was serving other gods. Then I took your father Abraham. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And that's the journey that we're reading about here in Genesis 12. So what the scriptures themselves see in this passage is God making the first move to draw Abram out of a life of pagan idol worship into something new that God will call him to. Now why? Why would God make the first move? Why would God choose? Why would God elect to save Abram? Is it because he didn't have any other options? It couldn't have been that. I mean, think about it. Melchizedek was alive at this time. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, the king of peace. He was alive. God, God could have chosen the promise to come through him. What about Job? Job was alive sometime around this time as well. Job was a man whose righteousness God boasted of before Satan and all the angelic host. He could have chosen him. But he didn't. Why did God choose Abram? Same reason God chooses any of us. Just because he set his love on us. And he's got his own purposes for our lives. You see, God's, God's sovereignty here in this passage. You see it in the language. Look, I'm going to read again here for you from the first three verses of Genesis 12. I just want you to see the language, how, how dominant God, the, the language is here, predominant the language is here of God's activity in this work. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And presumed I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through whom? Through the work of God. In other words... God saves in the same way in Genesis 12 that he creates in Genesis 1. He stands majestically over all that is not and says, exist. And he calls into being what was not before. He calls a pagan idol worshiper to himself by his own initiative. You know why that's good news? Well, because the alternative is really bad news. If he left us and waited for us to get our act together, I wouldn't be here, would you? I mean, think about it. Abram, his story resonates with me because before God called him, he was going his own way. He was doing his own thing. He was living for himself. He was pursuing pleasure and, and, and money and wealth and all the stuff that people live for in this world through the pursuit of other gods and the worship of other gods. He was going his own way. That's just like me. I'm so thankful that God doesn't save people who just have their act together. It's also good news. It's also good news because some of us, like Abram, don't come from a godly heritage. I mean, imagine what it would be to be Abraham. You're the father of all monotheistic religions in the world, and, and your heritage is a bunch of idol worshipers. Be kind of embarrassing. 
Listen, sometimes in a church context, I love that God builds healthy families. But what happens sometimes, if you walk into a church and you're here this morning, you don't come from a really healthy, godly family. You look around at all the smiling faces and the little kids and the, the parents to worshiping together with their children. And you think, man, this isn't for me. I'm not like this. I'm not one of these people. I don't come from this. But, but listen, God from the beginning has been in the business of taking people who come from broken and messed up situations and calling them to himself. And starting something new. I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm prone to talk too much and make speeches when it's not appropriate to make speeches. When, when I was proposing to my wife, I decided to make a theological speech. Um, I was supposed to be romantic. I don't know if it was or not. Um, she didn't realize I was even proposing at the time. So it probably wasn't very effective. But one of the things I was sharing with her was this. We get to start together because we both come from families that have messed up histories. I said, we get to start something new. God's calling us to create something new that, that there will be a legacy where there was none. God is in the business of doing exactly that. God describes Abram. The scriptures describe Abram the same way we're described. Bunch of messed up people going our own way, but God intervenes. He calls. And, and listen, I don't know you. I don't know if you're here for the first time, if you've been here a thousand times. I don't know your story. I don't know your background. I don't know your family. I don't know why you're here this morning. Who coerced you? Who convinced you to be here this morning? I don't know. But I want to ask if God is doing this right now in your life. Is this a moment where God is calling you out of whatever you're doing? You were going your own way, doing your own thing, and all of a sudden God is saying, you, I want you. Listen, hear my voice and come. Now, you could respond to this. How God saves, how does he save? Well, he saves by making the first step. He takes the initiative. God sovereignly Saves. You could say, well, no, I don't like that because that means that we're all just a bunch of puppets or a bunch of robots or pre-programmed. We just do whatever God wants. That doesn't sound right. No, no, no. You need to keep listening to what the text says next because the next thing is not just how God saves, but who God saves. Through Abram, we see the who as well. And again, I'll give you a short answer here. The short answer is this. God saves everyone who responds to him by faith. That's how Abram responds. He responds by faith. But you notice there's no quotation marks. He doesn't show his faith by words. He literally walks it out. Verse 4, so Abram went. He got up and went as the Lord had told him. He started walking. How do you know that this going is receiving the promises by faith. Well, one of the ways is by understanding the nature of the promises themselves. Because the promises, the very nature of them are those which must be received by faith. They can't be received any other way. God says, leave what you have known, your family, the land that you have known, and come to a place that I will show you. It's the unknown. God is calling him into the unknown. You can't receive that except by faith. God's also calling him to find his reward in what he could not live to see. You will become a great nation. He's not going to live long enough to see that. So the only way he can receive it is by faith. God's also calling him to receive this blessing that's intangible. I will make your name great. What does a great name look like? Can you touch it? Can you hold on to it? 
These are promises that must be received by faith. But it's not just the nature of the things that he's supposed to receive that tell us this is by faith. It's also the impossibility of these things coming to pass. See, God promises him a great line. Lots of children, nation coming from you. But there are lots of reasons why Abraham would be discouraged from believing that. Some, some of you, maybe, you know, in a church context, again, if you're single or even if you're married and for whatever reason you're struggling to have kids and you look around and it just looks like other people around you are passing you and you feel that pressure and you feel like maybe it's never going to happen for me. You can be discouraged, be weighed down by that. Abram, Abram was in the same place. I mean, don't think that because it's Bible times, oh, everyone was old back then. It's, it's, not, it's not like that. Look at the genealogy here in Genesis 11. Just back before our passage. And look at how old people are. In verse 12 of Genesis 11, Arpachshad is 35 years old when he fathers Shelah. Shelah, a couple verses down, is 30 years old when he fathers Eber. Eber's 34. Peleg's 30. Reu's 32. Sirug is 30. So, so listen, everybody around him, everybody in his family line is having kids around 30, 35 years old. He's 75 years old with a barren wife. You feel like life's passed you by? But Abram believes not just the promise of a great line, but the promise of a great land. But there's a problem with that too. Look at verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. He's checking it out to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Don't read that too quickly. God's saying, I'm going to give you a land to this nation that doesn't yet exist because you don't have any kids yet. I'm going to give you this land and, and you're going to fill it even though it's already filled with people. How are you going to overcome a nation that exists with a people that don't? It doesn't make any sense. But Abram believes. How do you see? How do you see Abram's faith in this passage, well, God takes him on a journey. He shows up in verse 7. Yahweh says, the, the Lord, Yahweh says, appears to Abram and says to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. He built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, and called on the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. What's going on here? This is a journey through the land, surveying the land that God has promised to him. And, and, and it's kind of like, you know when you watch a movie and there's a montage that's supposed to like span decades of a person's life and usually there's like music playing in the background and you just see like little clips of one thing happening and another thing happening. It, it's, it's that kind of a thing. Through the rest of chapter 12 and 13, there's this journey through the promised land where you just catch these little glimpses of what's going on. So many details are lost, but the details that are included are telling because they're kind of repetitive. Why, if you're going to skip everything else, do you repeat this one thing? What is it? What is repeated? And what is it telling us? It's telling us that as he travels through this land, Abram is committed to worshiping Yahweh and dedicating everything to him. Look at where he comes in this instant here in, in verse 8. When he goes to the, or rather... Um, I lost the verse. When he shows up at the oak of Morah, 
He comes to Shechem and the Oak of Morah. And this is, this is an interesting thing. Okay, so what's going on here? He's showing up to a place where there is the place of Shechem, the Oak. So it is one that is magnificent and stand out in its height, in its girth. It is a, a big, huge tree that would be easily recognized on the landscape as you're surveying it. So it is the oak, and it is the oak of Mora. Mora is, a, the root word is teacher, which means there's a teacher who is stationed here. Why are they going to a big tree in the middle of this land? The big tree is one of the high places of the land. It's a place where they would worship, big, huge tree. It's a place where it is designed for worship of a fertility god. So here's a worship center for a fertility, pagan fertility God, where there's a well-known teacher who dwells there. Abram, what are you doing? You're an old guy who's received promise of children. You don't have any yet. Your wife is barren. Why are you going to the worship, uh, a worship place of a fertility God? You know what he's doing? Look at the language. I love this. Verse 8. When he comes there, he pitched his tent. That's temporary. I'm passing through. But he built an altar. You can pitch a tent. I'm, I'm just here for a time and then I'm going to be gone. But I'm building an altar. He is saying, in the face of your pagan worship, your fertility gods who promise you all these things, I'm saying here in this land, this people that does not yet exist, we will be in this land. And Yahweh will fulfill his promise and God will be worshipped in this place. In the face of the pagan teachers and their idol worshippers, he by faith says Yahweh will be worshipped. This is, this is a very bold thing that Abram is doing here. This is like, um, imagine on a Saturday morning, you're sitting around with your family and doing what families do on Saturday mornings, right? You just, you know, maybe you're doing some puzzles or playing Monopoly, right? Saturday morning. Whatever. Um, and as you're doing that, all of a sudden the front door swings open and in walk these people that you don't know. And they begin walking through your house and they're just kind of looking at everything and they're talking to one another. Oh yeah, we're going to have to change the curtains. Oh yeah, we're going to have to repaint for sure. Okay, let's take this wall out. Let's redo the kitchen cabinets. Okay, which kid is going to go in which room? And they're dividing up how they're going to use the space in your house. And you're saying, hey, wait a second. We live here. And this house isn't even for sale. That's what Abram's doing. He's walking into the land and staking his claim and planning God's renovation of the land. I love Americans. I have Americans in my family, so like they're, but they're just so different, right? Um, I, I love what the Americans did. In 1969, Paul 11, they, they go to the moon, and they land on the moon, and they put a plaque, we're here for mankind, which is very nice of them. Um, but then they didn't plant like a mankind flag, did they? <laughs> it wasn't like a UN flag or planet Earth flag. It's like America, boom, <laughs> here we are. They're staking their claim on the land. This is, this is what Abram's doing. He's planting a flag. I'm here for Yahweh. This will be his land. This tells us, yeah, how God saves. He saves by his own initiative. But it also tells us who God saves, those who respond with faith. God calls Abram in the middle of his life and asks him to leave everything and come where God will show him and God will make him a new man. You know what that's setting the stage for? 
If you fast forward about 2,000 years in the history of God's people, there's going to be a man who will come and walk along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and find some fishermen who are mending their nets, working in their boats. And he's going to say to them, leave your nets, leave your father, leave your servants, leave your life and come and follow me and I will make you something new. He, he goes to a tax collector sitting in a tax booth and says, leave your tax booth, leave your plans of wealth and come and follow me. He goes to a zealot doing whatever zealots do before there was Twitter and, and he says, leave, leave what you know and come and follow me and I will make you new. This is the call of God throughout every generation to his people is to those who will receive his promises by faith, but they must receive a promise that calls them to leave everything behind and trusting their future to what God will show them. Does this only makes sense though. Why you would do that? When you understand the magnitude of the promise that's given. See, Jesus comes and declares not, not just the inheritance of a land or people, but he promises forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, so that people who are messed up, like me, who'd gone our own way, who'd lived in rebellion our whole lives, he says, come and you will be forgiven, because he died, Jesus died on the cross for sinners like me, and then rose on the third day so that we would have assurance of our salvation, that the price has been fully paid, and the promise that's been given to us is one that's not just for here and now, but for eternity to come, in the presence of the one for whom we were created. There is a promise that transforms everything. Like we sang, it redefines our future. But that promise, the nature and the magnitude of the promise can only be honored with an all-of-life commitment. This means I'm leaving everything behind. I remember, I remember when that happened for me. There was a specific moment I was standing, oddly enough, in a baptismal tank, I wasn't getting baptized. I was working at a church at the time and I was cleaning up the building. And I was in the baptismal tank moving some stuff around. And for whatever reason, I felt compelled to look up across the auditorium, across the worship center to the cross that was on the wall. And over the past several months, I'd been hearing the word of God preached from Ephesians 1 and 2. And it was like in that moment as I beheld the cross on the wall, everything that I had heard was being brought back to my mind and it's as if God was calling me to say, look and see that cross, that death, that shame, that God forsakenness is what you deserve but it's what Jesus has taken for you and for the first time in my life, I knew that was for me, that was in my place and I believed and I understood that that compels me giving the rest of my life and everything that I have to whatever he's gonna call me to. And he made me new. Has that moment happened for you? Have you understood the magnitude of the promise that we've received? See, true saving faith is a faith that responds this way, that leaves everything, everything that you look to for identity and pleasure, for wealth, might mean leaving relationships or jobs, But whatever it is that we give up it is worth it when we recognize the glorious nature of the promises. 
So, so that's how God saves. He saves by making the first step, by calling us. It's who he saves, those who respond by faith. Here's where I wanted to get to, which is this. Why? What does it mean for us? What is God calling us to? Why has he saved us in the first place? Well, here again, when you're in Genesis 12, it's important to remember that we're supposed to have read Genesis 1 to 11 before we get to Genesis 12, which we didn't have time for this morning. But what happens in Genesis 1 to 11 essentially is, is this. God says to Adam and Eve, he blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, all this blessing that I've given you here in this garden, take this and multiply this to every corner of the earth. Because God's heart was that the blessing he gave them would go everywhere. But, but our first parents messed it up. And instead of blessing, there was curse. God starts again with Noah and gives him the same words, be fruitful, multiply. They're there to fill the earth and subdue it. Bring God's blessing to every corner. That's still supposed to be operative. That's why in Genesis 11, in the passage right before this, God curses them at Babel because they decided to build up for their own pleasure rather than build out, taking God's blessing to the nations. So why then do we find here in Genesis 12 God narrowing all the promises down to one man? Is his plan now just to bless this one man? No, 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 no. Look at the passage again. Verse 2, Yahweh says to him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God's plan from the beginning, even until now, even when he narrows the plan down to this one, is to bring this blessing everywhere through him. Why? Why does God save? Why does God call Abram? So that through Abram, the blessing would go to all nations, to all creation. See, what God's saying to Abram is what we're saying this morning. He's saying, I want you to be not a cistern that fills up with the water of blessings and then just sits there. Not a cup that just gets filled up and sits there. Not a pond that grows stagnant when filled with blessings and doesn't move. But to be a hose, a conduit, a channel of the blessings that you've received taken to every corner of the earth. But there's a problem. If you read on from Genesis 12, you realize that Abram and his descendants, the people of Israel, don't fulfill this purpose for God, the purpose that God had for them in the world. Within their own walls, they cease to be a blessing to others. The, the widow, the poor, the orphan, the oppressed still continued to be oppressed. They didn't receive the blessings of God's mercy. Outside their own walls, instead of being a light to the nations and a blessing to the world, they became a, a prideful people who would then intermarry with others and begin worshiping the gods of the nations rather than telling them about the one true God. In other words, the hose was broken. So you can break a hose in a number of different ways or stop it from functioning in a number of different ways. On the one hand, you can stop the inflow of the water. On the other hand, you can plug the outflow. And what happens is the blessings flow in, the water flows in, and the outflow is, is blocked. We're going to hold it to ourselves as eventually the pressure builds until something breaks. And that's what's happened in the history of God's people until, until Jesus, 
a descendant of Abraham, comes into the land, the earth that he is to inherit, and begins surveying the land. And as he goes, he begins planting flags for his kingdom. You know, you know that's what Jesus' miracles were, right? As, as he was ministering to those who were oppressed by demons, as he was overcoming sickness and illness and death and all of these things, it's not just because Jesus wants you to have your best life now, right? It's not just that he, he wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy and everything's gonna go swimmingly for you if you just trust Jesus. That's not what's going on. What Jesus is doing is he is saying in the face of the curse of sin and death and suffering and sorrow, there is a greater kingdom coming that overcomes all of this. There is a healing. There is a resurrection. There is health, true health to come in the kingdom that one day will take over this world. The people that you don't yet see will be in this earth and Yahweh will be worshiped. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's calling people to himself. He's come to bless this world. This is, this is what's said of him in John chapter 3. These words, for God so loved the world that he, he took the first step. He made the first move. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him, who's saved? Those who respond by faith. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not his heart to curse, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, Jesus is bringing the blessing of God's mercy and salvation and forgiveness to the world. And then he calls his disciples to take it from here. That's why in Matthew 28, the last words Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew's gospel, the great commission, you as a church exist to carry out the great commission, don't you? It's the great commission Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you know what the Great Commission is? It's called to take God's blessings that you've received of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of restoration, of new life, and to take it with you everywhere you go, to your friends, to your families, to your neighbors, to, to other countries, wherever God calls you to go, to take it with you. And as you take those blessings with you, you become a hose, a conduit of that blessing, the blessing of eternal life. God changes people. He calls people who respond by faith. And when that happens, you know what we do? We plant churches. And each church is a flag planted in the ground that says Jesus' kingdom is coming. Amen? It's exactly what we are doing, what you are doing as a church. And I thank God for that. I've seen that in you as a church, whether it's in Cameroon or here locally as guys like Todd are freed up to invest in guys like me. I thank God for your heart to do that as a church, to bless as you've been blessed. But let me ask you as individuals then, how are you doing as individuals on a personal level? See, if you're going to overflow with blessings and pass on the blessings you've received, it's important for you to understand what blessings you have received. I want to encourage you to take some time and think carefully. What blessings has God poured into your life? Now, this could look like anything. It could be money. 
It could be your music. It could be your muscles. Maybe there's service around here that needs to be done. Maybe it's your mind. The church needs careful thinkers. Maybe it's your life stage where you have more time, where you are specifically now. Whatever it is that God has given you, he has given you in trust as a stewardship, not so that you can hoard the blessings and, and, and become a pawn that grows spiritual algae all over the top of you, but to flow, to pass on to others the blessings that you've received. So I say I want you to be a host, to pass on these blessings. It's my prayer for you as a church that you would understand that God is the one who calls and gives us these magnificent promises that they can be received by faith. And as you receive these promises by faith, God fills you and equips you and strengthens you and sends you. Why does he save you? So that you would go and be a blessing. I pray that God would make you that kind of church. Let's pray. Father, our great desire is that you would take us and just like you did with Abram, speak over that which is not and make us to become something, something that would be useful to you, something that would be a blessing to your creation. We thank you for the goodness of the promises that you have given to us, promises of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with you, promises of eternal life and joy in your presence. We ask, Father, for those who are here this morning who are receiving this as you calling them like you called Abram, intervening in their life when they least expected it. Give them grace to respond by faith. For those of us who are challenged to respond by faith and passing on the blessings that we have received, I pray, Father, that you would give us grace in this moment to fulfill every resolve for good. Take us, use us, whatever we have, use us to bring your blessing to your world for your name's sake. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.